Welcome to Off Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. This is an episode you want to listen to, because every once in a while there are really incredible books that come across my desk. I don't have a physical desk, but my proverbial desk. And The Self-Driven Child is one of them. This book is made for parents who are just getting into the world of alternative education, self-directed learning, unschooling, etc. It's a good gateway book. And so if you know someone who wants an easy kind of science-based intro, this is the book to give them and have them listen to this episode, have them read the article that I wrote about this book. It's called Give Kids Control. You can find it on the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. And I won't say anything else. Enjoy. My guest today is Ned Johnson, the founder and self-proclaimed tutor geek of Prep Matters in Washington, D.C., and the co-author of The Self-Driven Child. Welcome, Ned. Thanks for having me, Blake. You and Bill Stixrud have written this incredible book, The Self-Driven Child. I wrote a whole long article about it, and it's now my, I think it's my favorite book about motivation. Because my previous favorite book, which was Drive by Daniel Pink, mm-hmm. was great, but it was about all ages. And your book is exclusively about kids and teenagers. And it's just so good. I'm going to recommend it to everyone. So first of all, thank you for writing it. Well, thank you for your review. Your, your, so far, yours is, is my, my favorite review of, of anyone who's looked at the book. So, so. Aww. right back at you. It was great. It's, it's just, it was really punchy and, and, and uh, spicy and, and, and very much on point. So thank you for spicy. that. Spicy. I'll take yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, who did you and Bill write the book for? Who was your audience? Well, the, the audience is principally is principally parents of of really kids almost any age, but particularly for uh, kind of older children and then and then uh, teens and, and young adults. Um, it's funny when I first when we were first going at this, I really wanted to write a book for teens, you know, speaking to them. And Bill spends more time really with with families, so therefore writing to parents. And then our agent, uh, sort of the tiebreaker, sort of sagely observed that. <clears throat> Well, Ned, um, teens don't actually buy books, so that was that was it. But uh, yeah, we imagine this. We imagine this as a as a book for principally for parents, um, and really, but really, then for anyone who's working with uh, with kids. So you know, um, school teachers and, and clinicians, and 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 we have a lot of a lot of um, psychologists and psychiatrists that pick this up for their own work, and then also to give it to clients because they feel it's it's a pretty nice distillation of a lot of people's wisdom and a lot of our experience. Hmm. And you have founded a test prep company in the Washington, D.C. area, and, and this has been your primary experience working with young people, correct? Yep, correct. Yeah. So what's your story in brief? How did you end up co-authoring this book? Well, so I, I mean, I fell into doing test prep out of, uh, right out of college for kind of lack of, of more clear options and what I was going to do short term until I you know, grew up. And, and I found that I just liked working with adolescents kind of more than, than anything else and was a little bit better at helping them um, maybe than were some other people. So I've been pretty successful with it. Um, you know, I came together with Bill probably seven or eight years ago. We were lecturing uh, on, on motivation and we really just found that we kind of liked the way one another thought. Um, and we were both seen in, in his clinical practice as a, as a neuropsychologist and I in my work as a test prep geek, we're seeing a lot of the same challenges of kids struggling with um, anxiety and exa- you know, dis- disorder, so, so anxiety and depression, and also what we describe as disordered motivation, uh, where either people are, are just, just obsessively driven and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's Harvard or die, or who just kind of have no motivation, you know, at all. If I can't be, you know, if I can't be the best, why, why even bother? Um, and so I really came at this because both of those things matter. <laughs> it sounds silly, but really matter for, for doing well on things like the standardized test that I'm allegedly tasked with, with helping kids do well on. But when we were, when we were looking at this, we realized that these are problems that, that of course, affect every realm of kids' lives. Um, and so, so being successful as students, being successful, developing themselves as human beings, um, we just thought we had a, had a bit to say on this because uh, we, we want kids to have a healthy stress response and we want them to be intrinsically as opposed to extrinsically motivated. So who are the kind of kids who come into your test prep service? Uh, you told there's the disaffected kids whose like parents are kind of forcing them to be there. Then there's the Harvard or die. Is there an in-between there? Yeah, I mean, there is. I mean, you know, it's, it's really the whole gamut. I mean, you know, it, like D.C., like everywhere else, I mean, we may think of ourselves as being so much more and more and more, but if, of course, everything's on a bell curve. Um, you know, I would, say, I would say that what I've seen, what I've seen is more and more of, of kids who are overly anxious. I don't see that many kids who are, 
not motivated enough. Now, they, it may look like they're unmotivated, but a lot of times kids aren't working very hard because they're actually too anxious and they, and they put off and they procrastinate because the stress of, of, of attending to the thing they should be attending to is kind of overwhelming to them. Um, so my, I don't know, sort of secret sauce, I guess, is figuring out what it is that stresses kids and figuring out ways to help them feel more in control and therefore less stressed. And then by being less stressed, less cortisol in the prefrontal cortex, and they perform better on tests, not by leaning on them more, but by actually helping them feel more in control and, and less stressed. Okay, so you're trying to de-stress these teenagers who are preparing for a very high-stress experience, which yep. is the SAT or ACT or some other big test. Uh, good. We're going to circle back to that one now. <laughs> and, uh, good. Fun. Uh, but I... Your book starts with a discussion about the link between stress and control and mm -hmm. having a locus of control, a mm -hmm. sense of control mm -hmm. of your life. And that's a theme that runs through the whole book. So can you briefly describe what you see as the link between stress and control? Yeah, well, there are kind of two fun things to look at. One is there's one woman named Sonia Lupian who heads the Center for Human Studies of Human Stress in Montreal, and she has this clever acronym of what makes people nuts and what makes them, you know, stressed. And so N is novelty, U is unpredictability, T threat, perceived threat, you know, often the threat to ego uh, in particular academic settings, and then a low sense of control. So S is the sense of control. And the, 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 the science all shows that, that the low sense of control is the most stressful, really, thing that, that, that an organism can experience because we can deal with novel new situations and things that are, are, are threatening to us so long as we feel like we have control in that situation. And kind of the profound, uh, some of the most profound research on this uh, is by a guy named Steve Meyer who did this experiment with rats where he'd have them in a cage, their tails extending out the end of the cage, and they put a little electrode on it, and then they put off this light and let them know, and bam, they'd shock them, and their stress hormones just go through the roof. But what he then did is put a little a wheel in there and train the rats that if they spun the wheel, it would attenuate the shocks and you know stop and be less less intense. And, and then when they would shock them, if they could spin the wheel, there'd this massive activation of the left lobe of the prefrontal cortex, which would then regulates the stress response of the amygdala. So even though they're still getting shocked, this sense that there's something I can do made the stress response much less intense. And here's the fun magic. He then disconnected the wheel, but didn't send the memo to the rats, I guess. Shocks them anyway. The rats have been conditioned to think that this wheel works. They've been conditioned to say, here's my coping mechanism. Even now, even though it now does not work, I don't know it. I believe that it works. And the stress hormones are lower. And so Meyer describes this as at a neurological level, this is what a sense of control looks like. So you don't actually have to be in control all the time, but you need to have the sense that you can, you, that you can handle things and can cope. So what we see with, with adolescents is we want them to have the experience dealing with things that are stressful. We're not, we're not talking about you know, a, you know, being bulldozer parents or a helicopter and removing all obstacles, but we want kids to have the opportunity to handle with support handle their own challenges, handle their own difficulties, and, 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 and glory, have glory in their own successes. But somewhere along the line, we've, we've turned things in a way that we don't trust kids to handle things for themselves. And it's a huge disservice because only by experiencing things, feeling control in a difficult situation, do you wire your brain to have that stress tolerance and that resilience that's so important for lifelong success. So you just described a sense of control and it, it matters if you feel this sense of control, but not, it doesn't necessarily matter if you are actually in control. Why that distinction? Can't the average adolescent sniff out the difference between actually having some autonomy and control in their life versus just uh, this perceived, you know, fake well, control? Yeah, well, it's a good thing. I mean, we're, we're certainly, we're not talking about, we're not talking about trying to dupe kids. And, and what's important to keep in mind is those rats developed a sense of control by having control, right? They had control and then developed a sense of control. If you, if you see where I'm coming from that. Yes, and so, do. And so the, the, the people who study stress in adolescence show that if, if you know, like for instance, for instance with CBT and exposure therapy, if there's something that's really stressful to me, and, but I develop coping mechanisms for that, that sense that I can handle that, can then generalize in other places in my life. And so even when you, you, when you think about, you, you visualize a difficult situation and you rehearse a plan, you figure out here's what I would do. 
in a perfect world, you go and do that and really cement that your that into your brain with experience. But even the experience of anticipating and making a plan for it makes you feel I have a sense of control. I know what I would do in that situation. So, for instance, the same Sonia Lupian with her with her nuts says that one of the most useful tools to lower the, the stress is plan B thinking. I'm going for this, but what happens if it doesn't go well? I mean, if it's Harvard or, 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 or die, that's, ah, go for Harvard. If, if that's what you want, <laughs> fantastic. But let's have a plan B. So if it doesn't work out, you know, you go one notch lower, one notch lower, one notch lower. And it's uh-huh. a lot easier to go big and go hard for the thing you really, really, really want. But if it's I want it rather than I have to. And so part of that is if you have if you have the sense of control that if it doesn't go well, I have a plan that I can pick up the pieces and I can still move forward in productive and in successful ways, even if it mm-hmm. if, even if it isn't exactly what I want. So so that's what we mean by giving kids the opportunity to be in control, to feel in control. So it's like when parents often will go and solve things for kids and they're de- you know, kids are happy that the problem's been solved. But that doesn't wire in their brain that they're in control. It means I'm constantly looking over my shoulder for where's the cavalry. And that's a terrible, terrible way to live your life because a lot of times there, there ain't no cavalry coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from your book is uh, this one. Giving kids more choice when you can makes it easier for them to accept authority when they need to. Yep. And this is something that I have seen in my experience working with teens who are really genuinely in control of the time of their lives and who are often asked or forced to do essentially nothing. And then at some point, age 16, 17, 18, 19, they decide they want to jump into a job, go to college, do something that's you know part of structured, formal, normal society. And, and they pick it up almost always. They are able to get their act together. And, and join an authoritative hierarchical world. Uh, and so I've seen that borne out in my own mm-hmm. experience and, and that, what you just said about uh, actually letting them have some control and, and making them feel this sense of control. Then they can go into other areas of life where they are actually less in control. Well, that's exactly right. And partly because, because a low sense of control is so stressful, people will, will, will resist attempts to control them if they feel control in this situation or that situation and, and know, and I have autonomy and, and I'm in charge of this, then, and I'm, I'm, I know it, that's in my head and it's in my life, I feel less stressed. And so when you say, hey, Ned, I really need you to do this, I may not like it, but I'm, I'm willing to go along with it because it's not, that's part of my experience in my life. That's not what uh-huh. my life feels like all the time, right? And that, you know, obviously we'll get around to talking about school. One of the challenges with school is if kids feel like they're, they, they, they don't have a say over anything, then of course you have them fighting because it's so it's so terrible. I mean, so kids will kind of take the car of their life and drive it straight into the ditch just because that's the only <laughs> way that they feel like they can manifest yeah. control. Yeah, the metaphorical school ditch. Yeah, yeah. I, I like to talk about it in terms of consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, when someone is allowed to consent to something, when they're allowed to make a fully informed decision, when they can genuinely say no, then they will do things, including very hard things, because they have bought into it. But mm-hmm. when there is no culture of consent, it's, yeah, it's di- ditches all the time. Those cars are in the ditches. And it's so disrespectful uh, not to give, to act like. I completely agree. It's not your life. It's my life. It's my job to tell you what to do with your life. Uh, and that's another one of my favorite lines from the book is when, uh, you know, a parent says, well, I'm supposed to be a consultant to my child, not their boss or manager, uh, but my kid is not my client. They are not a business relationship. Mm -hmm. And you say, yeah, that's true. They're not your client, but it's also your kid's life. It's not your life. They own their life. We were just in Chicago and then this, this great talk of beautiful, beautiful group, the family action network, and they do fantastic stuff. And when you were signing all these books and then people were asking questions and this mom came up uh, and she'd been waiting in line for quite a while. And, 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 and she said, so my question is this, and she was totally earnest. My question, when does it become her life? And I sat on my back a little bit. Like, I think she was looking for like, okay, age 13 years, seven months and four days. And I, w- <laughs> because the default assumption is it isn't her life until I say it's her life, right? And I looked at the mom and I said, well, how old's your daughter? And she says, 14. And I said, I think if you asked her, she would say that it has been her life all the way along the line, or at the very least, 
it has been her life for a long time. And whatever you're doing, I think now's a great time to, to talk about how are you going to restructure you know, your relationship with your daughter. Ooh. I feel like this just plays into the uh, the idea that there is, are clear stages that every kid goes through and, and those books that say what every fourth grader needs to know. You know, the idea is we push them through this process for 12 years and then their life is theirs when they turn 18 or, or 19. But again, as you say in the book, it's like most of these kids have never had a real experience of doing anything for themselves at this age. And yet we ship them off to college. I love how your book is like, hey, you can chill out about college, take a gap year, take two gap years, go get some work experience. Just don't go and waste all that time and money if you are not ready for it. Like eminently practi- practical. Yeah, because you know we want we want. I mean, kid, parents are pushing their kids because they love them and want the best for them. And so, so I'm 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 really sympathetic to that. Oftentimes, you know, love based or, or or even stress based, you know, parenting imperative. It's just that they can get better outcomes, much better outcomes, if, if, if when we change the energy. When we, when we, we have the sense of whose life is this? And when we have difficulties, whose problem is it? Bill has this great line when we were giving these talks to schools and he says, you see, you know, the first 14 years of my career, I did a lot of therapy and I worked with a lot of, you know, kids who are struggling a lot of underachievers. And he said, the, the kind of therapy model, and he said, I, w- I would ask one of these kids, if you don't hand something in, if you don't do something, who's most upset? And he said, invariably, my, my mom. He said, and then the model goes on. He said, okay, well, after, after your mom, who's most upset? And the kid would think, he'd say, well, my dad. So, okay, after, after your dad, my teacher, you know, my tutor, my therapist, my sister, because she's tired of the fighting. He said, the kid was never on the list. And because the kid's experience had always been that someone else was responsible for this other than him. You know, when, when parents give 80 units of energy to try to make the kid give 20 and they ramp it up to 90, he'll drop to 10. It's just, it's just the way it works. And it is, it's so much more helpful to, to, to recognize that fundamentally, I mean, I, fundamentally you can't make a kid do anything. I loved in your, in your view, uh, you know, the, the picture of, of uh, McDowell from Clockwork Orange. Because yeah, you, we can't unless you're prepared to do you know you know chemically alter horrible, your children. Horrible right? things, right? Yeah, you can't make because if your kid doesn't want to do his homework, he lies flat on the ground and closes his eyes. You, you're going to prop him up, and even if you could do it, I mean, would you want to do that? And you can't you, you, you can't do that over and over and over and do anything other than make yourself and your kid nuts and completely under um, erode. The, the the autonomy and the inner drive that we all know is so important for people to live productive and and, and successful and happy lives. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to jump. Yeah, past my notes here sure. because uh, we are going to good places. Yeah. I think uh, the most reasonable pushback that someone can give to the arguments in your book mm-hmm. is that okay, you're saying kids are really stressed, they're anxious. Uh, we need to reduce this, but the world is a stress-inducing place. Many people are not actually in control of their lives. You need to be ready for that. You need to get ready for the world to kick your ass. And and so this is part of the experience of growing up and of school, which is, no, you're not in control. You need to learn to deal with this. And it's it's actually going to benefit you in the long run. I, I think that's the rationale going on in, in many parents and educators' minds. And so how do you push back against that? Well, there are a bunch of fun things. I mean, one thing with, with stress is to keep in mind that there, you know, and you have this spelled out really nicely in your, in your um, view, is that there, there's positive stress. We're not, there's positive stress, there's tolerable stress, and there's toxic stress. And so we're not talking about kids having a life that is stress-free because that some stress is good. You know, Hans Selye, who coined the term stress back in 1937 or whatever it was, talked about eustress, E-U, good stress. Mm-hmm. And we experience that as excitement, right? And then there's stress that's hard. We, I mean, you know, those, those rats and, and getting shot, they sure didn't like that. But it was tolerable, especially once they had that wheel and they, and they, could, they got through it. They had coping mechanisms. And then there's stress that's toxic. And toxic stress is either something that overwhelms uh, the, the, the nervous system and it's just, and completely flatlines them, or it's when there's no, there's no escape and it's, and it's, it's chronic and it's, it's inescapable and there's nothing, nothing you can do about it. The way to wire brains to be able to handle stress in the real world is to experience a stressor and then fully recover. 
and you take on that advantage, you know, and so it's like, it's like with exercise, right? You have a really intense workout, God, that was painful and you can barely walk and then you recover. But if you did that same workout every hour on the hour, ooh, you end ooh. up, you end up, you end up dead, right? I mean, you bad, bad, bad thing. It's torture then. That's it's the line torture, between right? pleasurable exercise and I am in a concentration camp. Yeah. And we think about, you know, that, that, that the world provides plenty of stressors for kids. And where should that reprieve be? Should the reprieve be at school? Should it be out with their friends? Should it be at home? And for us, home should be a safe base. Because the more low stress home can be, the more stress kids can tolerate out in the real world. What the science shows is that when with, with, they do principally with rats because they can do terrible things to rats, when they're constantly overly stressed and overly tormented, they become more and more skittish and more and more afraid of taking, of taking, you know, risk and kind of to, for, for, and seeking reward. So here's the, the great experiment. Um, um, Michael Meany did this thing with rat pups. So pups are baby rats. And from the day they were born, they whisked them away and had these lab techs, kept them away from mom. They kind of handled them for 30 minutes or 50 minutes, whatever it was. And it was really, really stressful to them. They think they're going to be, even they've just been born, they think they're being eaten, they think they're going to die or whatever. But if they give the pup back to mom, and mom is a high licking and grooming rat, which is the rat equivalent of hugs and kisses, high nurture, the stress hormone cortisol just flows right out of their bodies. And they go from, oh, to like, oh. And then me and his colleagues do this every day for two weeks, which is basically until you know, the rats become adults. Oh, my goodness. To, oh, thank goodness. High stress to zero stress. And it wired their brains in, in ways that they, they, they became what Meany described as California laid back rats. They were <laughs> impossible to stress as adults because they had the experience of really difficult distress and then full recovery. And it wires again, the, the, the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of your, the rational decision-making executive function part of your brain to have this beautiful regulation of the amygdala, of the stress response. And so they basically learned that they can, when things were going badly, they realized this will be okay. I will get through this because they always had. And note that these mon rats, they didn't, you know, raise an army of SWAT, you know, SWAT, SWAT army to go in there and extricate their pup, right? They didn't hire a test prep geek to go in there and solve the problems. You know, there was, there was nothing. All that mom and did was sit there and be nurturing. And, and we know for babies that what they need is they want someone to be responsive and warm, warmth and responsiveness. And at what point do people not still need and want that, right? You know, you have a lousy day. You want your friends or your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever to say, man, that's tough. How can I help? <laughs> As opposed to, well, did you or shouldn't you or why didn't you? Don't you understand how important this is? You've got college coming up. Mm-hmm. And the way that you simplify the role of the parent is really beautiful in the book because you say, yeah, make the home a safe place, mm -hmm. uh, be supportive, offer resources, make a nice study area available to your kid, say, hey, I'm available each night from 7 to 9 p.m. to help you with whatever you need, but yep. maybe not you know, outside of those hours, so you're not turning the parent into the slave right, of the right, child right, either. Right. right. Um, and then you describe the relationship um, – as being one of a consultant instead of the boss or manager. And this right. is something that, this is language that I've started to use when I speak to parents also, because it's really elegant. Uh, can you describe that relationship a little bit more and the, the analogy with the business consultant? Yeah. I mean, so, so, you know, so, so the idea is, you know, parents again are, you know, we're, we're, we're adults. We know what's coming down the line. We anticipate college. We can see all these things coming along. And so we have all this information that, and wisdom hard earned often that we want to share. But we've all had the experience of trying to, you know, tell kids, you know, air quotes, tell kids about this or that, the other, and they reject it, right? And they push back. And then that makes us frustrated because we're so concerned and think we know the right answer. And then we up, up our intensity back and forth and no one's getting, and we're, we're fighting with kids. And it, it really came out of Bill's research on homework early on where, where, where you see so many parents saying, uh, you know, I hate, I, I hate time after, after dinner because it's World War III. And, and he, we write, you know, tell your kids I love you too much to fight about, fight with you about your homework. But I'm willing to be your consultant. You know, if if you want to be successful, with this I'll do. I'll, I'll do anything I can to help you. I'll quiz you. If you want me to look over your paper, I'll do that. If you want me to help you organize your stuff, I'll do whatever I can. And what we're looking for is buy-in. 
Because again, if you push your kid, particularly as they move from being children to teenagers, they're supposed to want to do this by themselves. We as parents want to keep helping and it's our role to help them if they want help. But when you ask, hey, can I, may I offer you some advice on that? Can, can I, can, would you like some help? The kid feels a sense of control. And I can take dad's advice or say, no, no, dad, I, I, no, thank you. I got this. So then the follow-up concern that parents have is what if your kid says no and says, no, I don't want it. What, what do I do then? Then you step back and say, okay, well, if you change your mind, let, let me know. Because it's your son's work to do. It's my son's work to do it. And I've never had the experience of asking someone, hey, would you, would you like some advice on that? Have them say, no, I really don't. And then force it on them and have them be grateful for it. Because again, the, the, the defense reactions, the shields go up, right, when they're, when they're being forced and, and they're going to fight it. And we see so many kids using their energy, fighting what may very well be in their own best interest, simply because of how we give that advice. So every time I'm at a school and I see a parent who knows the work that I do, I come and say, well, I keep, I keep telling my daughter and son and blah, blah, and I told her, I tell her, and she, and she just won't listen. And I said, well, it's a good, it's a good point. It's a, real, it's a good concern that you raise. I say, may I offer you some advice? And they go, yeah. And I say, you ask your daughter, may I offer you some advice? And it totally changes the energy. And then you have buy-in. And if she says no, you come back later. Usually, you know, rather they'll come back later because usually their curiosity will get the better of them. Or they figured it out and their, their solution is just as good as what you had, in which case it's easier. You know, they figured it out, which is even better than you're solving it for them. And I will also add that this idea of being a consultant is so much less stressful for both mm -hmm. the kid and for you as a mom and dad, mm -hmm. because if you feel like it's your job to make your kid do whatever, and you know that by definition it's impossible to make someone do anything if they really, really refuse to do it, you put yourself in a much more powerful position where you're trying to be a, 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 a you're trying to be an influence over your, to your kid, not power over him, because we just don't want to we don't want to use our energy fighting kids and have their have them use their energy fighting fighting us. I am 100% on board with all this. And also, I imagine, I mean, you run a test prep service. You see kids who are highly motivated to get into universities and parents who really want their kids to get into good universities. And so how does a parent actually let go? Because you're saying it's your kid's problem, not yours. Offer help, but, you know, it's step away fundamentally let them do their own thing and then when the kid is not doing the homework or not preparing for the sat uh you know at the right pace uh then how is an actual real life parent going to step away from that and manage their own anxiety well there's a there's a bunch in there to, to what you said i mean for for me the, the big picture thing is is we want to think long term not short term and, you know, even as a test prep guy, the idea that the most important outcome of, of high school is what college you go to, I, I fundamentally reject that. Now, having said that, I want every person to be as educated as a person can be, because that's better for that person. It's better for us as a society, for people to develop their skills to the highest ability. But to treat high school as a four-year addition for college and, and, and sacrifice everything, including mental health and, and our relationships as families to that, to that altar is just is a really poor idea. Um, we just had a piece that came out in the Times a week ago um, about the, the eight kids that we've seen who were home from college six weeks after school started and they're home to stay because they flamed out because of stress, because of not being ready, because, because, because. I want everyone who's listening to have their kids go off to college when they're ready to the place that's right for them and to be super successful. But to do that, they need to have, in addition to you know, this resilience, they need to have inner drive, right? And the model of this, the, the principal model that we look at is what's called self-determination theory. Uh, and, it, and it holds that to be intrinsically motivated, which means doing it because I, it's a goal that matters to me and I'm prepared to work really friggin' hard at it as opposed to meeting someone else's expectation just to get, to get the, make my teacher happy and then I forget it or to, to please my boss, in which case I, I move on. Um, you know, the carrots and sticks. Inner drive comes from three things. We need a sense of competency. You know, if you're the worst at something, you just, you, you want to run away from it. You're not going to be driven to work hard at it. Mm -hmm. You need a sense of autonomy. 
you know, that it's that that I have to say over this, and you need a sense of relatedness. And when we talked to Edward Deasy, who who founded this, we said it's our perception perception that it's this autonomy piece that's really most important. And he said, absolutely, for developing inner drive, mm -hmm. that autonomy piece is crucial. Now, to getting your kid to want to work hard on ECT or whatever, the way that you get buy-in from parent from kids to to align their values with the parents is when the relatedness is high. The closer we are to the kids, the warmer the relationship, the more they feel like we understand and care about them and not just the grades and scores, the more they're likely to go along with and to buy into some of the some of the expectations, maybe not all of them, but some of the expectations that we have for them. But when we lean on kids and tell them, I'm sorry, I know it's you know, you don't want to do this, but this is just too important, we wreck their autonomy and we wreck the relatedness and now there's no inner drive to do this and and now you have to be a taskmaster and just bludgeon your kid to keep him on task or try to terrify him and fear is a beautiful motivation short term it's just as mm -hmm. just as terrible in the long term it shrinks your brain right we don't we don't want to do that so but your the other part of your question is what how do parents um how do parents learn their own anxiety? And it's a really good question because I think that we all live in an age that's increasingly more stressful. Certainly the, the world that I live in feels a lot more intense than the one that I grew up in. And we want to be sensitive to that. And I want to be sympathetic as well. But if we go back to the rats and the rat pups, one of the things that's most helpful to children and especially adolescents is for parents to be less anxious themselves. And part of the reason we got at this is I work with all of these kids and they're working really hard and trying to do their best in school on test. Invariably, things won't go well. The you know, practice test was bad. The actual test was bad, whatever. And kids will be upset and sometimes really upset. And, and almost in, invariably within a minute or two, the thought pops in their head like, Oh no, please, please don't tell my mom, don't tell my dad, he's gonna hit, mm -hmm. hit the roof. And it's like, well, hold up. So this, this kid is now, instead of running to mom and dad for help, is running away because it's her perception that her parents' emotional reaction is gonna be, be too intense. So yeah, we talk about in the book, if you, want to, if you want to help someone else, you know, you put on your own oxygen first. If you're trying mm -hmm. to sue the kid who's really upset, you won't do a very good job unless you yourself are less anxious. Now, we're talking to your question here about ECT or SAT, you know, which is kind of small potatoes compared to some of the real challenges, you know, kids, kids who are full on school refusal, who are clinically depressed, substance abuse. I mean, these are some really tough challenges. And what, what the one thing that I would suggest is for people to take the long view. If you knew that this terrible thing that your kid is going through right now is just part of her path. And if I could convince you that I've seen thousands of other kids like this and they don't get stuck, you know, because you, you're worried they're going to be, this is who they're going to be forever. And I say, that's not how it works out. When you see them three or five or 10 years later, they're doing beautifully. And, and this, was, this was something they went through and it was really hard, but this was part of what helped them become the people that they are. Mm -hmm. There's a story, uh, I can tell really quickly, and my, when I was, my father was an alcoholic who eventually drank himself to death. And my mother, partly because of that, struggled with depression, mental illness, hospitalization, suicide, da-da-da, suicide attempts. Um, and I spent three months of seventh grade in a pediatric psychiatric hospital, which is not as cool as it sounds. Um, and it was tough, right? But I went through a really, really dark time. But I also, you know, when I now when I get into situations that are difficult, my confidence and my ability to handle adversity <laughs> is probably abnormally high. But because I have the sense, you go back to that sense of control, I have the sense of I can handle this because look what I got through. And so when we have kids who are, you know, if parents are thinking, but, 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 take the long view, right? Believe me, the essay, if you're going to, if you're going to hang your hat on something, please don't make it an SAT or ACT score. <laughs> mm -hmm. Ned, so much of what you're saying is essentially the philosophy of unschooling or self-directed learning. And especially what you just said about kids who seem to be off track and struggling at some point in their earlier years, and then you look at them five or 10 years later, and you're like, you're a completely competent human being. That is the experience of so many parents whose kids were struggling, especially in school, and then they finally decide to give them a lot of control, let them do their own thing. And in that moment, they look unlaw, excuse me, unmoored. They uh -huh. look like they're just floating. They're playing a lot of video games. They're just hanging out. They're not doing anything in heavy air quotes. Mm -hmm. And and then years later, 
they are back on track. That's also in heavy air mm-hmm, quotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this relationship has been restored between the child and parent and this sense of, of true autonomy and true, uh, you know, my life is my responsibility it is back. And, and it was not there in the, uh, the earlier years where they were being heavily controlled, had little actual choice in their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, we're about to get to the school part. It's going to be very exciting um, <laughs> of the discussion. <laughs> yeah, spicy. But I just wanted to say that uh, self-determination theory is one of my favorite kind of gateway mm-hmm. drugs, mm-hmm. my, my favorite entry places for people who have never heard of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you say, here's an established theory of motivation, Edward DC and Richard Ryan, uh, you know, totally normal people saying, yeah, people need more autonomy. They need more chances to go deep into stuff. Uh, and one of, and the relatedness. Most, one of the most supported theories in the entirety of psychology. Yeah. Yeah. There's no real challenges to it, right? Right. Yeah. Just, just parental, parental fear about how, but, but how do I? And the implement, implementation, the implementation is, is, is always a challenge because there's such enormous individual differences, right? And there's no one, there's no one perfect recipe for, for each kid, but we're just, but, but your point, we're always just trying to find that balance. And I, and, and some kids need more of one than more of the other, but I think almost always when, when kids have really, you know, gotten to full on school refusal, it's because their autonomy is too low and the relatedness is too low. And as parents, we get so concerned, but my kid's behind and we want to push the dickens on the competency piece, like, like more math children will somehow solve the whole problem. And my take on it, you can always learn math later. I have no doubt that when you want to learn this and when you want to work on this, maybe you want a little help, but I have no doubt that you can learn this. It's just a matter of when. But when, oh, you're, when your point, when people are, when people, you know, because a lot of times, you know, the kid's staying at home for a year and not doing, not doing a lot of much, not seeming like he's not doing much. A lot of them may just be getting stress out of the system. When I work with kids who are clinically depressed, especially, or when they're anxious, they say, look, the the recipe is you know Bill has a great thing I guess you had this in the article you know the recipe for coming in anxious is being too tired and too stressed for too long, and so when people get to the point that they're depressed and they can't they kind of can't or won't do anything, it's taken it's taken months or years for the stress to seep into you, and you're you're gonna it's gonna take months or years for it to seep out of you, but when it does and you get back to the person who you are, you're gonna do remarkable things in this world. Mm-hmm. In the, and in the unschooling world, we call that the de-schooling process. Yes. <laughs> and it, you are a, an official closet unschooler, Ned. Congratulations. I've just anointed oh, you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you also touch on Mindset by Carol Dweck, uh-huh. which is a good one, and Flow by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And well said. That's a hard I, name to get. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've been practicing. And uh, Flow, I think, is another great entry point for skeptical parents because <sighs> you essentially say – Listen, everyone desires this experience of being highly challenged, but also being highly competent. You lose yourself in the moment, in the work. It's like what a great rock climber or surgeon is doing. And this is why you should let your kids follow their interests and develop passions. And when they're in the middle of something, don't interrupt them unless like the house is burning down. (laughs) Bill has this beautiful story. So Bill said... He said, he said, I grew, he grew up outside of Seattle and he said he wanted to go to the University of Washington. And when Bill's a, a bit older than I, he said, when, when I was in high school, to go to the University of Washington, you had to have a GPA of 2.5. He said, I had, I had a 2.8. He said, I still kick myself for putting in all that extra effort. And he made jokes, of course. He said, but he said, I don't remember ever finishing a book. I don't remember ever handing in anything on time. He said, you know, I just, I wasn't intellectually interested in anything I was doing in school. He said, but I was a passionate, passionate rock and roller. And he said, I had this little room in my house. I had an, I had a guitar and an organ. And he was, you know, in school age when the Beatles came around. He said, I'd go upstairs and say, I'll, I'll work, I'm going to go work on this, on this song and try to figure out the chord structure about a half an hour and then I'll do my homework. And I'd come back two and a half hours later. I'd been, I'd completely, total, completely lost track of time, completely immersed in doing this. You know, the, the, the epitome of a flow experience. And he said, but I'm absolutely convinced that a completely wired brain that was prepared to work hard and be fully engrossed, and I could go pedal the metal when I needed to, and, and, and I was sculpting a brain that, that, that could, could really work hard when it found things that it wanted to work hard at. He said, and then when I got to college and I was finally looking, exposed to things that were interested to me, I absolutely 
flourished as a, as a learner because I, I had a brain that could work hard, but I finally had things that I wanted to work hard on. So exactly your point, if you're doing rock climbing or coding or dance or art or you're writing, as long as kids find things, you know, and we put a little bit of asterisks on video games because there's, it's, it's not quite as clear that, that it's the same flow experience there because it's not kid directed. The, the video games by design, you know, push you where having to push yourself a little bit. So a little bit different there. Um, but even there, there, you know, I think there's still some value to it. You know, if kids are doing anything, they're, they're sculpting brains that are, that want to work hard. And if we do that, man, they're going to do great things with their lives. Yeah, I call this the folk psychology of unschooling and self-directed learning. The folk, and F-O-L-K? The F-O-L-K, uh-huh. because uh-huh. it's a lot of people talk about uh-huh. this and say, oh, let the kid do whatever they want, let them focus, and that will turn into its own skill, its own meta skill, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. later when they decide they want to do something that looks more real or adultish, they will be able to apply themselves shop craft to it. as soul, what's a uh, shop, shop uh, class of uh, soul, soul craft. Yep. Shop class of soul yep. craft, Michael Crawford. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I love that book too. Yeah, he's terrific. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad to hear that there is some scientific backing and it's not complete folk psychology. No. Uh, the no. Sci- I love when parents push back on me because one, I mean, I've spent 40,000 hours one on one, one with teens. So I, I kind of get where they're coming from. And two, <clears throat> dude, the science is all on my side. So you're not going to win this argument. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Now we're getting to the really fun part, okay. Ned. Let's talk about school. All right. Um, I want to quote a few short uh, things from your book. The first one is that we see a lot of kids who hate school, not coinc- uh, coincidentally, a student's sense of control lowers with every year they attend. Uh, they transition from lots of free choice in the youngest grades to mandatory homework, standing in line, asking permission to use the bathroom, needing to do what's asked exactly as it's asked almost every moment of the day. Where's the autonomy there? All right, I got one more. I've got one more. <laughs> and then from preschool through to college, we want kids to have a school experience that is engaging and inventive. School should provide a mixture of stimulation and downtime. It should encourage kids' natural curiosity and allow them to be in a state of flow for long periods of the day. And this is, you know, I don't have the part mm-hmm. in front of me where you say this is not usually true. Right. <laughs> uh, so you implicate conventional schooling over and over again in the book. And as I wrote in my review, this was the one chapter where I was really disappointed in the Mm self-driven child because the practical recommendations that you and Bill threw out there were like, give your kid autonomy outside of school, uh, encourage teachers to give their students more choices. Like, I'm just imagining how that conversation mm-hmm, would go. Mm-hmm. Like, the teacher's like, do you even know what my life is like? Like, what I'm required to do? Yeah. I have no time to do this. Help your kids connect with the teacher or switch teachers and, you know, maybe form some sort of team stress reduction team between student teacher and administrator. And I was just slapping my forehead saying like, <laughs> this, what, what world are you thinking of? Because like you work with teenagers, yeah, like, yeah. you know, that a lot of this stuff is pretty toothless in, in terms of practical recommendations. It's not going to re- reduce their stress or anxiety. So, so what happened here? <laughs> what happened in this chapter? Ned? Well, really, really good pushback, really good pushback. I, I appreciate that. I really appreciate how, how, how closely you read this book, which is, is, a, is a huge honor to us. Um, there are a couple things there. One, um, one is that, um, we weren't fully prepared to, to really kind of take on school reform because that can and should be a book all of its own accord. Um, and so it was, we didn't really have the space to do that. We we're already 100 pages past where I need to be. So that's the defensive reaction. Um, um, two, we really want um, teachers, we, want, we really want and wanted, wanted and want teachers in school systems to pick up this book as well. Because when we think of this as a manual for, for how to help kids, things have gone best when we've had the opportunity to talk with parents and the faculty and kids as well. And so we didn't want to throw too much of a bomb at, at teachers, um, you know, and, and sort of blame the teacher on this. Um, Mm -hmm. the piece that I think you put your finger on that I like, like the most is, you know, teacher saying, but do you have any idea what my life was like? Um, I guess if if I were going to throw a grenade, it would be more at, 
um, a political system where we, when we, we all have somehow bought into this idea of quote unquote accountability, which on the face of it sounds awesome. Like we have, a, we demand accountability from teachers and we demand accountability from students. But if you think about it, accountability is nothing but, but, a, but a really kind of nice, clever, expensive word for, I want to control these people. Mm. When we were, wow. we were at a school system uh, out in Chicago and, and talking with a bunch of parents uh, and then a few teachers there and this, this teacher at the school stood up and she said, I really love what you say about fostering autonomy in kids and I agree how important that is, you know, um, but I wonder about it and here's, and, and I could do, she starts getting faster and faster, but, but you know, what, what do we do when, when, when we know that we have to help kids meet benchmarks and, they, and, we, and we can't have kids falling behind because these are really important and they, this is how they evaluate us as teachers and this is how, you know, the school has to meet all the, the standards, we have to make the state standards and it's really important to meet the state standards because ultimately this is, you know, the valuation of the school and the community and, the, and you know, and, and this has a big say on, on, the, on, the, on the, the, the city and the real estate values because people look at where the best schools are and, and, she, and by the oh, end wow. of it, she sounds like a mad person, right? She started out as sympathetic and I understand how hard this is for kids and she ends up, but what about real estate prices? And I'm like, <laughs> oh my goodness, right? We're really going to sit there. I mean, I'm sort of big Jonathan Kozel fan. Right. If it's pedagogically sound, it must be administratively feasible. And if, if we if we if we think that the most important outcome is is these these test scores, and it's just it's it's rubbish because we look at the average score. Well, nobody lives the average. There isn't. Their kids are above the average and below the average, right? And we don't even use these assessments to do anything other than yell at teachers. And so basically, the, the long and short of it is, it's it's a little bit of a zero sum game. Right. If we want adolescents to have more autonomy in their lives at home, we want parents to feel less stressed themselves so they can grant or give up or finally give back appropriately more autonomy to their kids. If we want teachers to be able to grant more autonomy to their students, we need to give teachers a bigger pie of autonomy themselves. But if, if administrators feel like you have to lean on all the faculty or politicians, because it's easy to give politicians a hard time, you know, this, I mean, it's, a, it's a nasty little circle of I bite you, you bite me, someone, you know, you bite Tom, Tom bites me. You know, if, if we're demanding this quote unquote accountability all the while um, and decreasing the autonomy of teachers, we're completely screwing up the system because we're getting everybody more and more stressed. And it's just, it's just, it's a, it's a ruinous model. And if we go back to that self-determination theory, we give teachers more autonomy so that they have higher relatedness, they have lower control, and they feel comfortable granting their kids more freedom. And it's just, it's a healthier and it's a better ecosystem. So I, I think we need to get, get, get off of all of this, these accountability, um, uh, you know, and, and all the standards, you know, common core and, and standards of learning and all these things. And I just, I just don't think, I understand why people want to do them, but I think that we've now confused the means for the ends. You know, it's, it's like homework's more important than the learning itself. Yes. Yes to all of that. And the accountability that you're discussing is most applicable to public yep. education. Yep. But we see the same thing happening in private schools uh -huh. where the teachers really do have autonomy to teach the way that they want. They don't have to follow a state curriculum. Uh, they don't have to, you know, deal with periodic testing. And so... <laughs> so so what's going on here? It has to be more than just accountability because we have this whole private system right. where right. it's essentially the same thing right. as the public system. And intense, it's probably more intense because you have these, these serious college prep private schools with relatively privileged populations. And I imagine those are a good number of the kids who you see yep. walking through yep. your door yes yes. in D.C. Yep. And so what, yep. what else is going on here? Well, um, I, I would say stress. I would say stress, um, and part of it is our everything. Everything you measure, me particularly for the look at the work of Gene Twenge, uh, you know that all of this the stress has gone higher and higher. You know, just mm -hmm. generation generationally. And so one of the things is that um, I mean, easy things like we all don't sleep enough, which which you know we sleep in, you know two hours less than we did in 1900. And the effects of sleep deprivation have the same effects on the brain as stress. It elevates cortisol. If I'm then more stressed, one of the ways that I feel less stress is by having more control. 
and I take, I take control from Blake, I feel better, but Blake feels worse, right? And so if we're trying to figure out the ecosystem that lowers people's stress, certainly we have this idea that, 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 that the people who go to the best colleges have the most successful lives. And the research doesn't support that, as you know. I mean, you know, and, and the bill. Well, but so go ahead. spell that out for us, yeah. please, because yeah. I don't think this is common knowledge. Yeah, so I think, you know, so there was a great study that was done um, back in the 50s, I'll say great air quotes, that looked at lifetime earning of people who went to, I'll make this up, Harvard versus, I don't know, Penn State, and then those, but just as proxies for big, you know, super, super selective, you know, private uh, university versus a, a big public one, and found this massive difference in lifetime earnings. Um, but it turned out they'd done the, they'd done the study wrong. They got, the, the research was great, but they analyzed it incorrectly. Um, Stacey Bergdahl uh, and Alan Kruger, um, the mathematical principal mathematica, and, and then Princeton University, went back and looked at the data. And this time, they looked at people who had been accepted at Harvard, who had then attended Harvard, or people who had been accepted at Harvard, and then attended Penn State, just as proxies. And there, the differences disappeared. There was not this enormous value add of going to the most selective university. It was the person who, who went on and had these, made these remarkable lifelong success, whatever, whatever. So there are real advantages to going to selective college, particularly getting your first job to some degree, the network that you're in. And so there are advantages. And if people, people want to work hard to go to those, fantastic. But the research shows you don't have to, right? Statistically, people who go to super select colleges don't end up being more successful in terms of lifetime earnings, in terms of their, their, their happiness, their satisfaction with themselves, their relationships. Um, and so, so it's just, it's not this massive, massive difference. It's a very small difference. And the thing that we need to weigh this against is what is the effect of stress on, on impressionable, malleable, vulnerable nervous systems, right? We mm -hmm. think, you know, our takeaway is we would like people to take seriously the effects of stress on developing brains the same way it's taken us 20 years to think about the effects of repeated blows to the head. And what does that do? Oh, you just rang your bell, get back in there, Blake, you'll be fine. It seemed like a fine idea until we realized, oh boy, it really isn't. And so if you think about the most important outcome of, of high school, of, of adolescence especially, and even childhood, but the most important outcome of childhood and adolescence is developing the brain that you're going to have for the rest of your life. You want it to work hard. You want it to be motivated, intrinsically motivated. You want it to be resilient to stress. If you have a brain that's con chronically tired, chronically stressed, chronically unhappy, that becomes its default state. And that's a lousy brain to take into, oh, the next 70 years of your life. Just mm -hmm. don't want to see people doing this. But back to your original question of what about what's going on at these independent schools, probably more stressed out parents, more stressed out faculty, where they all believe, we talk about the, in the book, there's the DSM, the Handbook of Psychological Disorders, has this thing called shared delusional disorders that everyone believes that you have to go, whatever. And so everyone drinks this Kool-Aid, and we, we, we create this incredible sense of scarcity that there are only so many spots for the anointed. And God help you, if you're not top 10% of your class in high school, you're never going to be successful in life. And so they take the top 10 or 20% and make them absolutely manically driven to stay there. And then you take 80 or 90% of kids who go, well, what's the point of even trying? And they there, and then they don't work hard at developing themselves because they think if I'm not going to get the grade, why even bother? And so, mm -hmm. so, so, you know, all of these schools will talk about evidence-based education. It's like show us the evidence because the evidence on on stress and you know on stress on the developing brain pretty darn clear and pretty dark. When we were first writing the book, Bill wanted to have a chapter, and this is the one that you ask, why isn't it there? That got taken out. It was really titled "Brainless Education." It was titled "Brainless Education." You know, mm, there we yeah, go. So. There we go. Why wasn't that chapter in the book, Ned? So you know, so you know, so part of it is I'm. I guess I. I, I suppose I'm kind of constantly overly sympathetic, maybe over, overly empathetic, if I can be that bold, to the the situation that a lot of parents feel that they're in, and the situation a lot of par uh, teachers feel that they're in. And, and my vote would be for, um, you know, try, try, trying to, you know, we end the, the book with, with chapters, you know, about, about alternate routes, right? And, and this mm -hmm. is, you know, very much the unschooling idea. And I think it would be really marvelous 
for, you know, for all schools to, to broaden this, because this idea that's a funnel, I mean, now all these colleges brag about, you know, high schools, excuse me, brag about how many national merit, how many kids who went to, you know, elite colleges, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and, 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 or how many people go to college as though, you know, becoming a, you know, a master electrician or a master plumber, you know, Bill talks about his wife, her, his wife's hairdresser makes six figure salary as a hairdresser and she's great at, she makes people feel beautiful and she, and she's this beautiful conversationalist and she has a lovely life helping people feel better about themselves and it's very well compensated for that. Why is that not noble? You know, and, and, and the more opportunities, we give people the kind of this plan B thinking and these alternate routes. And, and one of the things that happens when you tell kids that there are other paths, it makes them oftentimes want to work harder on the kind of quote unquote normal path. There's a story in the book, Bill talks about this kid who, who you know, he 2.5 GPA, whatever, 2.0 GPA, and came, came and talked to Bill. And he said, look, I don't do anything. All I do, I, I basically sweet talk, you know, or, or, or connive, you know, um, con my teachers into passing me. But I don't do anything. I just can't. And Bill said, am I the only one who thinks that going to school is a waste of your life? Because you're not doing anything. You're driving your teachers nuts. You're tormenting your parents. Why don't you just drop out of high school and, and become an EMT? And so he went away. And next week, the parents come back. And he finds out that both of them are college professors. He thought, oh, God, they're going to take my head off. And they looked at him. They said, thank you. Thank you. Mm. We were so afraid. We didn't know what to do with this. And he doesn't want to do anything. And he said, we love this idea that there's another path for him to contribute to the world. And so he went and explored this. Here's what he found out. The, the Glen Eck with this beautiful uh, program for, for the, the rescue squad here um, works with high school kids. They said, you can only be in our, in our rescue squad if you're, if you're enrolled in high school. Now he had a reason to go to high school. And so he went from a 2.5 GPA to a 3.8 in a week. In a mm. week, because he had a reason to do it. Yes. It, just completely ch it completely changes the energy. So I would like to see schools. I mean, how many schools, we, we, we've taken out um, PE, we've taken out recess, because we don't have, we need to work on, on test prep, right? We've got to, these standards of learning we've got to do. We've taken out shop class. We've taken out, we've taken out, we've taken out, as though everybody in the universe, that the highest thing is going to the elite college and becoming a lawyer. Heaven knows when I want a lawyer, I want a good one. But the world doesn't work great if everybody's a writer or everyone's a blogger or everyone does podcasts. Everyone's a test prep guy. Golly, we want diversity. Ned, Ned have you read the book Excellent Sheep by William Duressowitz? I know it. I've, I've read bits of it. I'm not, not. You are echoing so many arguments in it. I think you're going to love it. Put it on thank your you, list. Thank you. Thank you. Highly recommend it. My acquisition it. of books yeah. and my consumption of books massively unbalanced. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, yeah, and what I love about the self-driven child is that while I feel that that the you don't give enough blame to schools, and you've explained your reasons, I think they're they're very sensible. Um, that at the end of the book, you do come around and you say there are all these different paths to success. And while the book is very college focused, you do provide some examples of people not going to college or dropping out of college. And I, I think Bill was one of these dropouts, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Well, he dropped out. Of, yeah. He dropped out. Of, he got into, he did beautifully in college. And then he got into the PhD program in literature at uh, Berkeley, which is really the best in the country. He said, but he had this mm -hmm. total, he was incredibly anxious and had this total imposter syndrome. And he went 20 straight weeks and didn't hand a single assignment and they flunked him out. Now he says, he laughs when, when, when he meets with underachievers, he's like 20 straight weeks, nothing, top that. <laughs> you know, and yeah. thank God he did. I mean, he has transformed the lives of tens of thousands of children. And his getting his flunking out of graduate school the first time he obviously went on and became a neuropsychologist. Flunking out of the the literature program is the best thing that could have happened to children in the mm -hmm. DC metro mm -hmm. area. Mm -hmm. And that is part of taking this long view as a parent, oh. saying, while flunking out, while my kid dropping out of school, while you know I'm giving them autonomy, and that means they're getting C's and D's instead of A's and B's, like that must feel so terrifying in the moment. Yeah. But your book really argues for taking this much broader view and say, you know, saying, think about what kind of adult this kid, this empowered young person is going to become when you have this different kind of relationship with them. Yep. It changed, it changed the energy so much. And part of it too, you know, we, we had talked the Chinese parable, right? You never know when it, when do you, when do you finally assess, was this a blessing or a curse? 
Right? Mm-hmm. Bill has this, mm-hmm. has this client who, the <laughs> enterprising teenage boy, he and some of his friends brought drugs and alcohol, you know, pot and brownies and vodka jello or whatever, to a school event. Eh, not really the best thought out plan, right? They get caught, they get suspended for three days. Dad stays home from work to, to oversee the school suspension. While he's at home, perhaps because of this suspension, he has a heart attack. His son has, is, on, is also another kid who's on the rescue squad, performs CPR, saves his dad's life. Ooh, now this gets more fun. Because of the hypoxia, he has to spend a few days at the, the rehabilitation center here, and they have to cancel their overly you know, expensive uh, um, trip to uh, spring break, trip to Indonesia, the week that the major tsunami wiped out that entire coastline. And he said, then, so the mom said, we still sit there and think all these years later, was it a good thing or a bad thing that he got suspended for three days? Okay, that, that's a pretty outlandish <laughs> uh, example there. But uh, I take your point. Yes, I, yes. But, but, but people, <laughs> quitting school can be a good yeah, thing, I guess, but, is the moral of that yeah, story. But people quit, I mean, people quit school and they, and they gain their strength, they gain their energy back, and they, and they come back stronger because they fully recover, right? Rather than rehabbing yeah. their need this year, let's take the season off, right? Or you take time off and you wander around and, you, and then you finally figure out what it is that you want to do. I mean, we, we recommend yes. for so many kids that they do a gap year because you're going to be so much more successful when you work at something that aligns with your values. But doing school, as they say, right, is basically giving this teacher grades and, and scores that they want, right? But and, and that can feel thrilling, I guess, to get the grade. I mean, for me, it was always uh, school was really easy and I always got A's. And so that was a constant big ping of dopamine for, hey, I got another A. But it's a yep, very different thing from what aligns with your values. I got to college. College for me was partly because of the tail end of all this kind of mental health stuff was, was, was uh, okay, okay, but not great. And I didn't feel super successful. When I started working, it was just a job for me to be a test prep guy. And when I realized, man, do I really like working with teens and, and helping them be successful when they wanted to was as more thrilling than anything I've ever done, particularly when I get to them play all this kind of, you know, test prep therapist, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely thrilling. I have worked six days a week for 25 years. Now, I, and, and, and nothing, when I, when I get that moment at work with a kid and you get that, ah, oh, and, and you, there's nothing for me, there is nothing more thrilling. And in a perfect, and, and, and I didn't, you know, it was, I was making $19,000 a year working seven days a week. It was, I could barely pay rent. But, but, and, 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 and chances are I could have gone into something else. And so that happens for people over and over and over and over. And it can happen after college. It can happen in college, but it can also happen in eighth grade when you drop out of local public high school and you spend a lot of time, to your point, looking like you're not doing nothing. But when you, you spend a lot of time thinking and you start paying attention to what matters to me and what do I want to work hard at? And, and one of the challenges we, particularly when we talk about technology in the book, is that so many kids are busy all the time and what little downtime they have, they're glued to a screen, a screen and it just doesn't give them the opportunity and some of it's them and some of this we blame on technology and some of this we blame on school and some of this we blame on parents where no kid, kids, you, you can't develop a sense of who am I? Who do I want to be? Unless you have adequate time thinking about who am I and who do I want to be? Ned, you are a closet unschool. You are just an unschooling advocate. Okay, <laughs> this is you, you can't avoid it anymore. What everything you just sure. said, and yeah. and everything sure. you and Bill wrote in this book, like very powerful, powerful arguments for you know maybe not for kids who are just a little bit stressed and anxious by school, but kids who are deeply stressed and disturbed and uh, and are really having a terrible life, and they don't look forward to doing another X number of years of this. Like your book is a big strong argument in favor of doing something else, whether that's just going to a kind of alternative school, whether it's going to a radically alternative school, homeschooling, unschooling, et cetera, you know, community college, there's the whole spectrum of alternatives out there. Yeah. And so whether you know it or not, you are, you have given our little self-directed education movement uh, some heavy ammunition. So thank well, you Well, you're very welcome. Much. I'll tell you the story. So I have a daughter who's in ninth grade now, and she is... Um, temperamentally, we talk about in the book how she picks up secondhand stress. So her whole life was if she was around someone who was anxious, who was, excuse me, who was, who was, who was angry or frustrated or upset, anywhere near her, 
she would perceive that that person was angry or upset or frustrated at her. And it eventually, and, and it, it, she was, she was in, not in the right school for her kind of social emotionally, right? Um, she's very bright, but she's not very socially intuitive. And so it was not the right place. And so basically she got to March of, of eighth grade and full on school refusal. So this is hard, right? This was, I mean, she's clinically pressed. This is hard for her. This is hard for me. Think of I mean, my job. I help kids get into college, right? But, you know, I've, I've read about the, I wrote this little book. And so I'm trying to apply everything from this book from my kid, right? And so, and I'm going to tear up as I sit there. So pardon me as I choke up. You know, we went out for this walk and she was just beside herself. She was so upset. And she's like, you know, I don't have any friends. You know, nobody likes me. I, I, you know, I'm not doing school and blah, 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 blah. And I, and I, I looked at her. I said, look, I said, you are, you are funny and you are kind and you're curious and you're smart and you're going to have a really successful life. Just not right now. And right now it's hard, but you have to trust me that you're going to have this beautiful life. And apologies if it's hard. Here's, you're going to have this beautiful life. It's just hard right now. And, and I'm going to help you and Anne's going to help you and all these people. And we're just going to get you through it. But you have to trust me because I have more experience on this than you do. And so what we sat at home for March and April and May and June, and all we did, we played card games that we got a puppy. We took the dog for walks. We did, we did nothing that was even remotely school related for seven months. And she went to a different school. Pardon me for tearing up. We went to a different school and it was awesome. And my wife and I looked at her and we were apprehensive that the same dynamic would pop up. We talked to her after the end of her first week of school. And I said, so how's it been? And she looked at her and she thought, and she said, well, I have laughed more in the last three days than I have in the last two years. Mm. And I was like, oh, and I'm just like, good for you. Mm. And she's doing great. And she's still bumpy because she's a complicated kid. And she's still got a therapist and it's going to take her a while. She's not going to be the fullest sense of herself until she's 22 or 25. But to be fair, or 30, that's true for all of us. Who is not in a state of becoming? Because God help you, if you're not in a state of becoming, they might as well just put you six feet under. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that story, Ned. Thanks for hearing it. Uh, yeah. Um, I think that's a good place to put it. Bonus. And uh, <laughs> this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your time. Thank you so much. And also thanks to Bill for writing this book. And let's stay in touch. And thanks for you for, for doing this work of, of unschooling because it is so, I mean, one of the things that is so hard for parents and for me included is when your kid gets stuck and you, you have the sense that I have to, but I can't. It is, it is it's the most stressful thing in the universe because you feel like there's nothing you can do there. And the beautiful thing, what, what you're doing with unschooling is giving everyone a plan B and a plan C and a plan D mm -hmm. and making them mm -hmm. feel safe that there are so many paths. And, the, and, then, and, the, and, and because that's the, that's the truth about life and making those other paths feel safe for people is such a gift to the world. Ned, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Blake.